I'm Alexis Alexander, and this is The Off-Duty Diplomat, a podcast about the 10 years I worked for the U.S. Department of State. Hello, everyone. We're back with the penultimate episode of season two. We will start with closing out my experience working with the Trump administration at the U.S. Embassy in Israel. This episode will start with Nitsan and I, since I thought our discussion of the interconnected nature of Israeli and U.S. politics was pretty important for you to hear. Then we'll go back to my discussion with Lisa about my transition to my next tour. And we'll close with one of the stories from my time in Israel that I will never forget. My next question for you is going to be, how did you handle working? And I guess this is, sounds like it's happened to you a couple of times at a place that you kind of fundamentally disagree with politically. Because I feel like that was also kind of an unspoken tension. It's kind of like, we've all agreed, like the Americans are here. We're supposed to be nonpartisan. We're just representing all of America. It doesn't matter who's in office. And then the Israelis also come in with like, y'all also have your own political opinions. <laughs> And you have these positions and we're all just everyone's working to promote the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Don't need to worry about what anybody else, you know, their preferences or thoughts might be. So I still can't believe it's that it happened, really. I was there. but <laughs> I remember the day after the results were announced, the office was everybody was walking with their head down and I couldn't hear anything in the entire hall of the, the, the office. I mean, I only heard the birds outside. It was so creepy and stressful and terrifying. It's like this thing to like transition a little bit into the next question, but like you might be liberal about your own country's politics and then conservative about another country's politics so I think it's one of these moments where like most of the people at the embassy are like liberal when it comes to America's politics, but not necessarily as much when it comes to Israel. So it's a little bit of this like weird juxtaposition where I feel like a lot of y'all took it really hard that that happened for good reason, for very good reason. I took it very hard when it happened. I was also shocked. I remember just, I think all of us were trying to gauge like what this is mean. I think even after it ended, we we still don't know fully what it means. You know, it 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 changed everything, and I I'm not sure it even has anything to do with the political stance or being liberal or conservative. This was a major event outside of the normal political boundaries. You know, it was a wild populist event. Uh, it still could happen again. I think it changed a lot of our perception of what is possible in American politics, because I think a thing a lot of Americans don't realize is, yeah, this is, you know, we're Americans. We live in America. We are voting in these elections. We're paying attention to what's happening in those elections. But for other countries, what happens in our country is very critical, like not as important maybe as their own elections, but pretty similar. Because there's a lot of stuff that happens in other countries that is dependent on our policy and our support or lack thereof. Yes, definitely. So, yeah. Final question. Yes. How did you compartmentalize your own beliefs or not when you were working with us? At first, it was not even an issue, maybe because the, the administration that I came into was very in line with my personal values, you know, 
on most um, major topics. And then under Trump, it was uh, sometimes, <laughs> I mean, at some point we <laughs> decided to treat it as a comedy rather than a tragedy because you can't really for a long term deal with something being so wrong <laughs> and and it it very much i mean i i'm not sure what it like apart from the uh, american political context the trump administration really quite normalized the radical right that was until then very sidelined and very considered to be very radical and even most people didn't know about that stream of the Kohelet Forum uh, and um, all that. You mean the radical right in Israel? Yes. And uh, the, the ambassador had very tight relationships with people who were far from Israeli mainstream and are, uh, unfortunately, now they are very close to it. Um, you could argue that he helped move them closer to the center, honestly. You could. Um, definitely. Uh, I think I remember all the events that were done with this Kahelet Forum. You know what that is? That's a lobby, like Americans with shit tons of money, just with the declared aim to impact Israeli politics. And that is something that was not acceptable before Friedman, you know. And everything that you're saying is public record. Okay. There's no, you're not saying anything that's not already in the public record. <laughs> we know that because we helped make that public record at the time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, most of the time I, I put in most of my energy in making my mouth stay shut, you know, so I don't comment <laughs> inappropriately. <laughs> Uh, or use the, even the way that they decided to normalize the use of uh, uh, the phrase Judea and Samaria, like instead of the West Bank, which is the very uh, right-wing religious messiah term for the, like it's the biblical term. It doesn't even cover the entire West Bank. It's geographically wrong, but it's a biblical term and not a political term. And the undertone of that is basically the erasure of the idea of Palestinian statehood in that location. Yes, which was very acceptable in the right wing circle, a radical right wing settler circle, but only there. And that's, I think, the main thing that Friedman, um, his greatest impact is in normalizing and pushing that circle into mainstream of the Israeli politics, because if the American institution like is into that, so why are we so scared of them? But we were scared. We were right to be scared. They're a bunch of very dangerous. A lot of, I think you could argue a lot of the conflict that we're seeing play out in Israel today, politically, could be directly linked to the rise of that faction and the fact that they gained so much power in the last I definitely believe that at least he accelerated the process because it went down really fast after, afterwards in a way that uh, the next administration has no chance of fixing in any way. And I think this is a thing people don't 
necessarily understand as much about international relations, but it is supposed to be sort of a double blind protection system. So if you get somebody in office who has radical or destabilizing politics, like let's say an American president who completely upends 50 years plus of foreign policy on a specific and very critical and very controversial international relations issue, normally the host country and other partners will be able to push back on that. But because we directly use our influence to push political movement in the host country, in this case, Israel, what we've done is break down that double blind system and instead now bring to power, as Nitsan said, people who were much more on the periphery of political discourse in Israel at the time that the administration changed who now are sitting very front and center. I mean, I remember when two or three of them ended up with like key ministerial appointments. And I think that was very shocking to think that people in those parties could. It's insane. The, like occupy those positions. The current government in Israel is really the worst nightmare that anyone could have had. Like even two years ago, nobody would have thought this could happen. So I guess what we're saying is populism is contagious. So look out, everyone. <laughs> get, get your inoculations. Stay away from, from proto-fascism if you can. Um, okay. Sound advice. Yes. <laughs> if only. Uh, I felt totally the same way, dude. I mean, I, um, I remember then at some point I had, you know, you, I worked on all these visits. So I had a lot of contact with the White House, with the State Department, with, you know, these kind of high level people and their people on a regular basis. And I remember at the end of a visit, one of them asked me, oh, would you like a White House appointment? Do you want to work at the White House? And I remember thinking, oh, dear God, no. Uh, you know, you think you're like, you would jump at the chance to like have that kind of power and access and move your career. And I remember thinking, oh, no, they think I agree with this. They think I think that this is OK, what they're doing. And I don't at all. And it was a real kind of like flash moment for me where I was like, what am I doing? That I can't even imagine you in the Trump White House. Is there anything you wish I had asked you? Anything else you want to say about the experience? Anything else you think people should know? People should know. That's very general. Let me think for a second. I think I want you to know how remarkable it was to watch you from the sidelines just in the beginning of a career that I imagined would be much longer eventually, but I was so done with after <laughs> I finished. I was going to go into, I was like, when I, when I worked at the embassy, I got my uh, master's in political communication. I really wanted to go deeper into that field of diplomacy and governance. And um, after six years at the embassy, I got so tired of all that. I just live my life. But what I was, no, I, again, I lost myself at the point that I was, and I wasn't, I, I never knew how old you were, but I, I did know that you were younger than me. And it was so impressive for me to see this professional that had her shit together. I mean, I'm almost 40 and I don't have my shit together now. But then you were so, I know I've heard it in other episodes that people saw you for something that you didn't necessarily, necessarily feel like, but you were so put together and you always knew what to say. And 
how to get out of this really dodgy situations that some of the work put you in. And it was just so impressive and it inspired me just immensely. I don't, I really don't know how to thank you for it. Anita, that's so lovely. That really is so nice. I mean, thank you so much. I really appreciate hearing that. I- Next, we'll finish out with Lisa, starting with one of the bright spots of working for the new ambassador, and then discussing my transition out of Israel and into my next chapter. Well, I also remember you had, you had some fun moments too, right? Wasn't there an Aerosmith? Like, there was a moment that you were like, with Steven Tyler and the ambassador at the Wailing Wall. Were you there when he went to the wall? Did you come? I did not go that day, which I, I sort of regret. I didn't know Aerosmith was going to be there. Um, you know, I went at previous times for other things, but that was a miss on my part. I mean, none of us knew. None of us knew. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to tell the story because you broke it in there. And it is actually, it was actually a high point. So the new ambassador came in. I want to say he came around January, February, 2017. And he kind of did this whirlwind tour of all these different places and meetings and things like that. A new ambassador comes to post, obviously in the public affairs section, we want to get as much footage as possible of him sort of affirming the relationship. And that means going to all of the important sites and country. Of course, one of the biggest parts of that is the old city of Jerusalem. There are a number of sites there that are very symbolic and important and well-known. So, and also that ambassador was, uh, religious man. He's Jewish. And so he wanted to go to the wall uh, in Jerusalem. And so we escorted him there with our whole press team and the deputy chief of mission was also there. And I think maybe we had one other staffer. And while we were at the wall in our big huddle with like the security guys securing the area, and we had our like fixer who was like pushing people out of the way so he could get to like his prescribed route to the wall that we had sit. They saved him a spot and everything. It's like <laughs> ridiculous. Um, and this is, is where you're going to put the print. That particular yes. print for you. <laughs> we basically, they basically had an X like on his, it's like, sir, you will go right. It's like the whole, whole thing is so worked out. But we look over and there's another big huddle of people which suggests that there's another quote unquote important person at the wall. And I look over and it's Steven Tyler. And I sort of nudge the DCM and I'm like, that's Steven Tyler. He's here at the wall. And she was like, should we talk to him? I was like, he's not going to talk to us. And she was like, hold on. So she went over there and said hi to him and brought him over. And he basically came over and like said hi to the ambassador. And they did a whole handshake thing. And so I ended up exchanging information with like his you know, fixer person. And they gave us all free tickets to the Aerosmith concert that night. And so we ended up in the VIP section next to Bar Raffaele. And I think this very other like high level kind of shadowy Israeli businessman. But, you know, we went backstage. We met, uh, I think it's Joe Perry. He's apparently a, a Trump fan. So uh, he was very excited about Ambassador <laughs> Friedman. But we... We should, you know, they did their whole meet and greet. We got all these pictures. We're in the VIP section. So that was like a crazy, yeah. amazing thing that kind of came out of nowhere. And I was really excited to get to go to that. I, I would love to hear how your decision was received to leave. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the TLDR. I really made that decision in Israel. I knew during that tour that that was not going to be a sustainable lifestyle for me. So, and then also combine that with what we just talked about, which is seeing that the people who are really making decisions and that everyone else had to rally around 
we're not subject matter experts nine times out of 10. And I found that so troubling and so disheartening because I'm like, at least if I'm going to do all this, can I run it? You know, it, it, well, is there a point where that's going to happen? And then, yeah. So I started talking to a career coach in 2018. I think a couple months before I left, I was like, I don't think I can do this. I need your help. I don't know what else I could possibly do because all my education and all of my everything has been focused at doing this for a long time. Yeah. So I, I started talking to a career coach. That person really helped me map out some potential options. And I knew I needed the runway of Afghanistan just to like, number one, ratchet down a little which is an insane thing to say about serving in a war zone. But that was very much my thought process. I was like, there's nothing that could be crazier than this. Wow. It couldn't happen. Wow. And to to my credit, my first year in Afghanistan was the best year in the Foreign Service by far. It was by wow. far my best job. It was that my best experience. It was incredible. That first year almost won me over if it weren't for the fact that, you know, you're being shot at and bombed and it is a war zone. So... <laughs> Maybe also not sustainable as a lifestyle, but uh, I started planning my runway and I had a two year tour in Afghanistan, which you did two years, two years. I didn't know that was even allowed. Mm -hmm. Wow. I did a two year tour. And one of the reasons for that is I was like, okay, I know I don't have the contacts to get a soft quote unquote job in Europe. I don't know anybody in EUR bureau. But I've done this really hard job in Afghanistan. I made a really solid showing at my consular tour. I'm going to have these bona fides from Afghanistan from two years of doing this job. Someone please give me a linked assignment to one of these jobs. And of course, it didn't happen. And that's when I was really like, with all due respect, F everybody, because I don't know what else I can do to show y'all that I'm competent enough to deserve to be a place that has like good health care and where no one's shooting at me. Yeah. Do, do, so do we need to explain what a linked assignment is for the audiences? Yeah. So the department super quickly provides these incentives to do very difficult tours. And one of the incentives that used to be offered was what they call a linked assignment. So you do usually one year in what then were called the um, high threat posts. So Pakistan, Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, and then you could get an assignment someplace that's usually really hard to get, like Vietnam or Japan or Belgium, you know, or Argentina, where usually you have to have a lot of connections um, and people kind of looking out for you in order to get those jobs. And so I didn't have the connections and I still couldn't get that job even after agreeing to do an additional year in a war zone. And that's when I was really fully like, if you guys don't care enough to let me be somewhere where I can get all of the surgery I need to get after having not taken care of myself this entire time in order to do this work, that's it. I'm good. That's, that's a tough, that's a tough moment of record of recognition of like, does this department care for me when I've given it my all? And it kind of goes back into what I was talking about when I was leaving about like, I was really appreciative of the DCM coming to the front for me at that time, but it was kind of too little too late. I'd already made my decision. Right. And I wasn't already, I, I literally had not looked into doing another tour because I was, you know, doing all the connections and, and bid, you know, bidding on a next assignment. So it was kind of late in the game. Um, but it's just kind of like, well, where is that mentorship? You know, I, you know, coming in as, as a fellow coming in as a, like, you know, a, a, a black woman, 
you know, where are the, where's the mentorship to navigate a space that was previously described as pale, male, and Yale, right? And it's like, you don't just bring people in and drop them in and say, okay, you're in, like navigate this space. But, you know, I think the department, Alexis, is a real different place now. I mean, with the current administration, um, I, well, <laughs> I'm not there, so I can't speak, but I know that they have like a chief, a chief DEI person, uh, um, uh, Abercrombie uh, is her name. Uh, Gina Abercrombie. Gina Abercrombie, yeah. right? Um, and I really respect her. Like, I, you know, I don't know if you've had a lot of interactions, but I had, as a fellow, I had a lot of like times where she came and spoke to our fellow class. And so, you know, so I, I'd seen her on different occasions, very down to earth and seeing her get that appointment. I was just like amazing. And then I saw that another person was a staff aide, my role in South Africa, which was my first tour, that staff aide became also like a DEI person in the department. What happened was she left the department, <laughs> left. And again, they respect your outside experience. She left the department, they got appointed to this high level position mm. based on her outside mm-hmm. experience. So, you know, for many, I think people of color, I'm not, not meaning to turn this conversation towards that, but many people of color have to leave the department because they want to go and for some build generational wealth. <laughs> and, you know, that other people, they, they don't necessarily have that sort of same urge or need to do that because they come from a place of like, of, you know, privilege, and they can say, I can do whatever I want, kind of like the conversation you had, I can do whatever I want. And so they can go make whatever decisions. But for, for many people of color, they're like, I, I, this is my time to build generational wealth, to have something to pass down to my kids. And so it makes sense to leave the department and be able to take care of yourself, pay your medical bills, do dental I mean, work. It just, it, I mean, if we were, if we were working for the Department of Defense, if we were veterans, if we were military, I would have a GI bill. I would come home and be able to buy a house and have help with that and have support for that. I would have a lifetime of medical care for me and my family, no matter if I'm employed or not. You know, I would have access to those support systems. And I, who served in an active war zone for two years, which is unusual even for members of the military individually to serve that long. Yeah, that's unusual. And I have nothing. I have none of that support. And not only that, I can't even get someone to give me a shot at a job that I would crush and that I have proof I would crush. I'm not asking for a hand on I'm asking for you to look at my record doing this work in other places where the work is much harder and higher profile than in this location and nothing. So it's like, well, if I'm not good enough on merit and you're not going to care about me as a person, what am I doing here? As a bonus, we'll finish this episode with a story of one of the most potentially high stakes situations for a very public failure that I experienced during the tour. I also just want to tell one story. Tell all, girl, this is your show. I'm just here (laughs) chilling. (laughs) So I was um, doing a visit for the special representative uh, Hmm. and one way that I got to meet so many of the officers at the embassy is that I would be the press control officer for the visit. So I'm in charge of all the press aspects. And then they would assign a regular control officer who's in charge of like making sure the principal or the visitor has everything that they need, all the paperwork, they're checking their phone, they're making sure logistics are right. They make sure he's got his ham, you know, not ham sandwich, but you know, egg salad sandwich, obviously not ham. Obviously. Well, this is Israel. No, but actually, no, obviously. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so I was 
paired up with my buddy, who is control officer uh, for the special representative. And I was the press control because this dude loved to tweet stuff and insisted on it, frankly. So I always got assigned to him when he would visit because he wanted to do social media stuff. Me and my buddy, who was an econ officer, we had been uh, <laughs> we had been with him all day at the embassy in these different meetings he was doing, talked to the ambassador, he wanted to go there, wanted to go there. And the way it works is when you sit in a car with a principal, they sit, think of like a big SUV. So the front seat is the driver. Then there's a security guy in the passenger seat. And then behind them is the principal. And then behind the principal will be the staffers. So me and my buddy would sit behind him in the third row of the car. We walked up to meet him uh, at his meeting at the embassy. He came out. He said, "Okay, um, I need to go to Jordan. And we were like, oh, okay, sir, like, when do you want to go? What, what meetings, blah, blah, blah. He was like, um, uh, like in two hours, about two hours. And we were like, oh, no, 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 no. You can't just go to Jordan. Did he not do that? Why not? Why not? No, I mean, this genuine question. Why not? Why can't? Why because not? these visits take all of this official all knowledge. Oh, all the stuff planning. you said. He has to have a security escort. He has to have a visa. Right. He has to have a handler at that embassy. Someone in the embassy has to know he's coming so they can pick him up in a vehicle. Oh, so he was just like, oh, I was in the neighborhood. He was trying to do a drive. He was like, I'm just, just like, I'm oh, going to hey. go. I'm going to go over to, to Jordan. And we were like, um, I looked at my buddy. I looked at him and he looked at me and we were like, Oh no. Mm -mm. I no. mean, how? No. So my boy is on the phone. <laughs> He's calling this person in the ministry of security. He's calling this person. I was like, listen, buddy, I know this is technically your show, but like, let me help you. So I'm talking to this person at the Jordanian, or sorry, at the U.S. Embassy in Jordan. I'm like, hey, heads up. Special representative is trying to come. He's trying to come at this date. I'm trying to figure out what the airfield is he would land at. I'm trying to figure out what like vehicle he would be on. I'm trying to, can you guys figure out the visa for him? Can you meet him there? Can you do this and that? Um, and so, because you have to get all this stuff together. There also has to be, you know, in a normal word, like someone at the department would know that their special representative is just flying wherever he wants to at a moment's notice. So, oh my God. So my dude is calling, you know, Ministry of Defense. He's calling his people at the interior, like the Ministry of the Interior. He's calling his people because you can't just fly something into Israeli airspace. And the special representative is not going to fly commercial, which means some kind oh, of official. Wow. Jordanian aircraft is about to fly is going into to Israeli to. airspace without clearance and without Atlantic space to pick this man up. And I was like, and oh, without no. starting an international incident. Exactly. Right? Because that's the other thing. Because I'm just Ooh, like, girl. the Israelis are not about to have <laughs> nothing random flying in the air. Oh my God. No, I was like, this place is going to get shot out mm -hmm. of the air if we don't call these people right. and let them know what's happening. So, oh, oh my God. God. So, on top of that, <laughs> There's another layer because he is the special representative and he's very close. He was very close to the president. And right. we were worried, what if this man gets kidnapped? Because at this oh, point, he thinks he's just going to get on some kind of aircraft and fly off to meet whoever he's supposed to be meeting in Jordan. We don't know who this person mm -hmm. is. We don't have any information. Oh, so he didn't even tell you who he was going to see. He's just like, I'm just trying to go visit my mans real quick. Yeah. Or like you're driving somewhere and he's just like, oh, wait. One more stop. He came out of that meeting at the embassy. He said, in two hours, I'm flying to Jordan. And then he gave us almost no information. So we then had to put the whole thing together. And I give full credit to my dude in the econ section. I'm not going to say his name because I don't have permission to use it. But he was a no. champ. This dude, actually one of the only black men at the embassy. He and I were really good friends. I remember when we pulled up to the airspace, the airfield, he had just gotten off the phone. <laughs> 
ministry of defense. He was like, okay, they said it's going to be all right. And so, no lie, girl, we see this all white helicopter fly in to the airfield, land. He goes over, he gets in it, jumps in, and it takes off again. And it was this luxury helicopter. So I've flown in a lot of helicopters in the course of my job. Most yeah. of them are military, which means they're gutted on the inside. There's like a bucket seat. Yeah, you're holding on to yeah, a strap. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and this dude got into, I want to say it was a full white leather upholstered helicopter. <laughs> got royal seal on it and everything. Anyway, he got on the this G thing. wagon oh of <laughs> he got on this freaking thing all by himself. We met our Israeli counterparts at the airfield. We were so we were like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, y'all. He didn't tell us till last minute. They were like, listen, all right, we'll figure it out. No lie. It was like they got clearance for this thing to land maybe like two minutes before it would have crossed into Israeli airspace. It was that close. And then when he flew away, we were like, you know, we don't know who he's supposed to be meeting at Jordan. We don't have this person's contact. I've alerted the embassy that he's coming over, but he might have just been kidnapped. We have no idea. We have absolutely no idea. But he made it back. Everything he was fine. He didn't make fine, it back. Right? Everything was okay. But I just remember that day. Me and my boy went out for a drink at the end of the show. If anyone has earned it, it is you, dude. Like, oh, this was yeah. So- no, this is a this is a Don Julio 1942 night. Okay. <laughs> this is this is um what's the super, super expensive tequila, the Clase Azul? There you go. That is is giving that it was oh, jacked oh. it was wild that is a thing that will stay in my memory because i was like this man is about to start a war with his carelessness no seriously the last time that i was put in that position anything adjacent to that professionally i actually did have a panic attack like it was a very small one that I kept to a very close circle of people. But like I, again, the last time I was put in that kind of a pressure cooker situation at work, I literally freaked out. I mean, I figured it out. I had my little minty bee and I pulled it together and I made it happen. But <laughs> you got to make it sound cute because like otherwise. <laughs> I mean, you had to have a contained panic attack, you know? Yeah. I had a contained panic attack in a room full of windows and my coworker, if she ever listens to this, she knows exactly who she is. Held me down. This is why I love her. But also like, yeah, exactly. Like, why are we having, why are we putting these pressure cooker type situations? And yes, you know, my little anxiety that I came to the job with is on me. But the situation, the culture, the environment, that's not on me. And no one gets paid enough. No one gets paid enough to experience that at work. I think part of it too is like when you're at a certain level, you can't say no. You know, I'm not allowed right. to say no to the special representative for Palestinian no. and Israeli like peacekeeping. No. I am entry level, second tour at this point. I'm not allowed to be mm-hmm. like, sir, that's unreasonable. I can text other people. I can ask them to push back on my behalf, but there's not a world where I get to be like, you're not going to do that. Right. You're not empowered or enabled or nor supported in being honest. So I can either support him in what he's trying to do, the lunacy that this person is trying to move forward with. Drive him off the cliff. Either I can facilitate (laughs) this wild nonsense, uh, which is, quote unquote, my job, or I don't do my job and protect my sanity. And that was the and your story. But like ruins exactly. your corridor reputation. It ruins you your people, employability. If you talk to people I worked <laughs> with in at that embassy, like 
for sure, the American officers, there's not one I worked with who I think would say bad things about me as an officer. They might not like me personally, but I don't think there's a single one who would be like, oh, Alexis was incompetent. Like I killed it in that job and I busted my butt. And because I worked with so many people from different parts of the embassy, at least I had a front row audience for almost every single psycho thing that occurred that I had to get through. That is one example of an absolutely absurd situation that I was prepared for work. But yeah, man, mm-hmm. like I, 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 I'm there. Uh, and I wanted to tell that story because I just thought I would give us another example no. of some high stakes nonsense. With that, we will say goodbye and thank you to both Nitsan and Lisa. I hope you found our conversations interesting and entertaining. I would like to thank both of them for their candor and humor in reflecting in the work we did together. Next episode, we'll close with what I took away from that two-year crucible. See you then. If you would like to support the show, you can do that on Patreon, or you can buy hats, mugs, t-shirts, and Public. If you are a current or former diplomat that would like to tell your story, you can email me at offdutydiplomat at gmail.com. is an oral memoir of my career in the Foreign Service. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love a review. Thanks for listening.